0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, the lead mentor here at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and mentorship. Check them out at tkex.org. And today, I am joined all the way from the other side of the world, Mr. Derek Griffin. So I've been following him for a while. If you've been living under a rock, he is an awesome researcher and practitioner dealing mainly with patients experiencing pain. And I'm keen to dive into psychologically informed practice and some practical tips from his experience and his take on the research so we can help our patients living with pain. Derek, thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today.
1: Thanks for the opportunity, Daniel. Glad to be here.
0: Awesome. So for the listeners out there, I always start with the infamous. Question, what's your story?
1: So my name is Derek Griffin, and I'm a chartered physiotherapist here in Ireland, um, in County Kerry. Um, So currently, I'm a full-time clinician. And my primary cohort involves people that have had pain for usually quite a long time. Um, So I'd see people from rheumatology, orthopedics, and general musculoskeletal. So I'd have quite a mixed caseload. so yeah so currently um as i said i'm working working clinically and really enjoying it
0: awesome so full-time clinical load at the moment absolutely and you've transferred over to to telehealth i imagine based on the situation now with with the virus
1: uh so i, I suppose it's a, it's a little bit different i'm i'm based in a um in a private hospital here in 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 kerry so Perhaps for the next few months, I'd be probably doing more inpatient um, rehabilitation, um, so again, I suppose it, it depends on the setting people are involved
0: in, so um, not so much telehealth for, for the moment, but that, that may change. Awesome, yeah. lots of changes for for depression in these coming months. So, for sure. So Derek, I, I know you put out some really great content, and some of the recent ones were on psychologically informed practice, so looking at CBT models looking at act models, exposure therapy so so for a, for a general start to the topic, what's your definition of psychologically informed practice and and how do you go by how do you go by applying it?
1: Okay, I suppose so the, the first thing that I would say to that is that psychology is always involved in any of our interactions with patients you know so the idea that there is a thing that's that psychologically informed practice even even when we're not aware of it the psychology is is playing out all the time so that that's the first thing so i suppose when, when i think of psychologically informed practice i'm i'm really thinking about how as humans how our actions and our perceptions which include pain are shaped by context and that will include things like meaning our beliefs our cognitions our expectations, our uh, social factors that might be going on and our prior experiences. So for that person in front of you, it's really about understanding their individual unique story and their trajectory to date from a biopsychosocial perspective. You know, so I, I would keep it that that simple. It's really realizing that our actions and our perceptions are influenced by a whole host of things and not just what we would have traditionally um, consider just the physical factors.
0: Absolutely. And I, I love that. It's um, whether or not we, we like to admit it, we are dealing with people's psychology. We're dealing with their thoughts and perceptions and beliefs. We can't just, you know, take the mind-body dualism approach or approach it just from the, the physical, the biological, or just think of them as, you know, bodies with tissues that, you know, adapt.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that's maybe one of the, one of the downsides of a biopsychosocial model in the sense that we see the biological, the psychological, and the social as being these three distinct factors, but ultimately the psychological and the social factors are playing out in our biology and our physiology. So they're they're not in any way, um, they're not in any way separate. Um, And, you know, traditionally the things that we would consider physical factors or physical interventions, we now know that these are influenced by lots of other things that are going on in people's lives as well so we know that our physical interventions like exercise for example have an impact on people's mood. we can use exercise as a way of helping people engage socially as part of groups etc so we really need to move away from this idea of physical social and psychological and 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 look at it from a more all-encompassing perspective awesome and
0: perhaps the inactive model or even just rather than bps having having some kind of unified person-centered approach might be helpful to communicate that because i think the biopsychosocial the term itself is is it can be easy to lead on to the the separation of the of the three components so have you come you've come across the inactive model do you think that that's a suitable solution when discussing these concepts of being unable to separate the mind the body the context
1: yeah, I, I think from a patient perspective, it's, it's really about that as therapists, we need to be really good listeners and at least get a sense of the complexity of that individual story and, and, and try, to, try to make sense of it from a patient perspective. So I, I do think we need to be careful that we, you know when we're trying to explain these models to patients or whether or not we actually have to explain these models, it's, it's really about, I suppose, from a from a clinician perspective it is good to have an understanding of these models but ultimately for for the patient it's about understanding that their perceptions and their actions are influenced by you know, things that they might not have previously considered, um, especially, you know, I suppose they might have preconceived beliefs and expectations when they're coming to see a clinician, whether it's a physio or, or otherwise, about what that person does. And I suppose it's our job to give them a slightly different perspective as to what might be, um, what might be involved or contributing to, to, to their presentation. So I think there's room for, you know, understand, or there's room for these different models, but we, we need to be careful that we don't we don't become, or it doesn't become too complex when, when, when trying to explain it to the patient.
0: Awesome, great point. They don't have to walk away knowing the intricacies of, of the BPS model per se. They just need to make sense of their experience and have some helpful strategies moving forward. That was great. And,
1: and I, I think the qualitative literature tells us that when, mm. when we look at what patients value, they're, 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 they value an understanding, they value being listened to, they value goal setting so we need to take that on board and whatever model we're using ultimately we need to be giving those we need to be giving patients an understanding we need to be listening to them and we need to be making some sense of of their of their story within limitations obviously
0: very true very true and you, we were touching on the importance of context and you put out a few a few posts and you've, they've been shared and you've had past tweets reshared by people on facebook and i'm keen to to dive into the, the importance of context when it comes to exposure therapy or graded exposure as is commonly termed.
1: Yeah. So exposure therapy is, is first and foremost, it's a behavioural intervention. So it's, it's, it's an intervention designed to change people's behaviors. And in terms of pain, it's about, for example, it's about getting people to re-engage in activities that they might have pre- previously avoided but it's about more than that. It's not just about engaging with activities. It's about engaging with emotions, with certain thoughts and beliefs, et cetera. So exposure is, is much broader than, than a physical intervention. It's, you know, it's, it's, it's encouraging people to, you know, to engage with certain emotions that they might have been suppressing, for example. Um, so when it, comes to, when it comes to learning, learning during exposure is very much tied to the context it takes place in. And, you know, to give you an example would be if, if you think of somebody that has, you know, that has a, had a history of low back pain and, and has developed a fear of forward bending to, to, to pick up a box from the floor, for example, how you go about designing that rehabilitation program and the context in which that takes place will, will determine the outcomes of that. So if, for example, you design an intervention where, in the clinic when they see you, they're, they're exposed to this forward bending that they've previously been avoided. That might not necessarily translate into a real-life scenario where they have to bend to pick up the box at work, for example, because the context is entirely different. In a, in a situation in the clinic, they might feel that it's very different than the context in which they have previously experienced the pain, they might feel that there's more safety there because you're there with them. You know, they do it slower. They might have mirror feedback to guide them. You take all that away in a different context and suddenly it, it's, it's, it's a very different be, um, behavior. So the learning gets tied to the context in which, in which that takes place. Um, so rea- the way I would say exposure therapy is exposure therapy needs to become a real world intervention it can't just stop in the clinic. It, it's really about equipping patients with the skills to start engaging with tasks that they might have avoided, but in real life situations. Um, and I suppose this is where the term facing the fear um, comes, co- comes to mind, you know, um, and another typical example and a very different example would be take somebody that's rehabbing following an ACL injury. And they're at the, they're at towards the later stages of their rehabilitation and, and, we're re-exposing them to being able to jump and land on one leg. Okay, so as part of our rehabilitation, we give them mirror feedback. You know, we give them a certain number of repetitions to do. We, we, we give them some external cues to focus on. But now compare and contrast that to a game scenario where none of those safety cues are available. They don't have that, um, they don't have that safety net or that sense of security. And we may see a very different outcome or a different response so it's really important that when we're designing our interventions that we're really trying to figure out what are we trying to change and in what context are we trying to change it you know so if this is somebody that needs to do a lot of manual work as part of their job then the exposure intervention has to expose them to that very context rather than assuming that what happens in the clinic will necessarily transfer into, into a different context. And we, we can do that in different ways. So we can make sure that as part of our interventions, there's variable practice. So we don't get them doing the same thing in the same way all the time that we, you know, it might be different weights they pick up from different heights at different times of the day in different environments. We, we try to keep it unpredictable because when it's unpredictable it facilitates learning and we ensure that there's repetition involved so learning involves lots of repetition it doesn't have to be the exact same every time but there has to be repeated exposure to to the to the fear task or whatever it is you're trying to change in order to optimize the the outcome
0: awesome so it goes to say that it probably takes more than just one session to get them to to experience that motor learning effect it takes um more than just them doing a deadlift in a barbell in a gym setting for them to translate that into their, their context. And just like we need to be sports specific with the athletes that we work on, we need to be context specific with, with all patients. Right.
1: Absolutely. And and I think it's really about getting the patient to understand the principles behind the exposure therapy so that they can actually become the architect of their own program. You know, this doesn't, it's not, it can't be too prescriptive. It's about, looking at, you know, helping them understand how we go about changing fear and how we go about promoting engagement with activity. So then they can go home and almost look at their own life, look at their own situation and and, and determine what things am I not doing that I'd like to do and, and now how can I apply those principles that I've learned to that scenario. Um, so it's really about developing those coping skills and, and self empowering patients to, as I said, to become the architects of their their, their own program.
0: Awesome. So empowering them to take charge and also empowering them with the tools in case they deal with this problem in the future. So what are some of the, the ways that you can empower them? So you mentioned repetition, variety, variability, perhaps some progressive overload or graded approaches to it. What what else would you include for the, the patient's education?
1: Yeah. So you mentioned there the whole graded overload. So I think as part of an exposure intervention, it, because we're getting people more active and getting them doing more things, we, we can start to target areas of their, I suppose, the so-called physical rehabilitation component as well. So we can get people stronger. We can, we can, we can get people to trust their body a little bit more and, 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 and reflecting on that and, and using that going forward as a way to empower the patient. But, but beyond that, in, in a more pain-specific context, patients have to be prepared for flare-ups. Okay, so flare-ups are often a pivotal part in people's rehabilitation plans because you know i liken a flare-up to coming to a fork in the road you know if if people flare up and they don't have the the necessary coping skills often they they move back into old habits which might be avoidance which might be thinking this is never going to get better and and lead to lead to poorer outcomes or we need to take that flare up on board and and have people equipped with with certain skills that might help them navigate that flare up a little bit better because the reality is, is that most times people do flare up at many stages of their journey. Um, While we do try to avoid it, it's often not always possible to do that. Um, And in some ways, when people flare up, we can use that as a really good learning tool to get people to apply the knowledge that they've gained and reflect on that situation and see well, going forward, what might, what might I need to do differently? Or what are the factors that contributed to the flare up this time? So, you know, what changed in my life? And not just what did I do differently, but, you know, how has my sleep been? Was there anything else that was going on in my life? Was there a particular source of stress in the last number of days or weeks? You know, did my, was my behavior different in any way? And then looking, using that as, part of their rehabilitation going forward because you know reflecting on the patient's own story is a very valuable way to educate them on how pain works and and what they can what what factors contributed contribute to that so i suppose it's around having a discussion with simple things that people can do when they're flared up and that might mean a short-term reduction in their volume or the type of exercise or activity just to allow the symptoms to, to settle we might use cognitive reappraisal strategies. So this is where understanding that pain is not necessarily a measure of damage and is a, more a measure of sensitivity comes into play. Because when people flare up, if they believe, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not harmed in any way or this hasn't damaged me, then that's much more positive than thinking, oh, you know, I've done something to harm my back or I've injured something, which for the vast majority of people, might lead to avoidance or, you know, negative expectations, um, going forward. So it's about applying everything that has happened or they've learned in the clinic to these current, to the current situations that they're in. Of course, we have things like mindfulness, we have exercise, um, looking at, factors around sleep and promoting, promoting general well-being around a time of a flare-up is, is, is very important. Getting people to engage in active reflection. So I'd often get people to write things down. So, you know, almost a, a bit of creative writing around that experience and what was good about it, what was bad about it, what have they learned, what factors might have contributed to that, because that becomes a way of really engaging the patient in their in their own story so I, I think managing a flare-up is a crucial bit to being able to implement any of the other interventions especially something like exposure therapy which for some people can be um can be quite daunting
0: absolutely and preparing patients beforehand to expect perhaps a flare-up so they have the tools in, and it's less less of a, a scary thing when they suddenly ex- experience it because a lot of them might not expect it at all after yeah. the first session. So starting with that expectation from the get-go would be helpful. Absolutely, yeah. I agree. Awesome. Moving on to some uh classification. So we see perhaps in some of the, the conversations that we have uh with colleagues online, offline on chronic versus acute pain and classifying them patients under the two subcategories I've even seen, and we come across acute on chronic pain patients. So is there, is there a value in, in separating the, the two, the acute versus the chronic pain patient? Should we treat them differently?
1: I suppose per, perhaps from a research perspective, it's, it's a use of classification. Um, however, clinically, I, I'm not sure that it is because the way I would see it is that pain is always a multidimensional experience irrespective of whether you've had pain for a day or whether you've had pain for 10 years. Um, There's always going to be multiple contributing factors and the history and the story is always more important than the timescale. You know, so the danger here is that acute versus chronic can lead to a false dichotomy and, and we tend to see this. So we tend to see acute pain being interpreted as meaning it's peripheral or there's something in the tissue and chronic must mean that it's probably central and, and a whole host of psychosocial drivers or factors involved in that. And, and we know that, you know, that, that broad categorization just, just isn't true. You know, so if I, for example, if we, if we take a very acute traumatic injury like a, a lateral ankle sprain, you know, that will be picked up in the history you know, a, a, any good clinician will, will identify that, yes, there was an acute trauma, you know, the ankle is swollen, etc. There's clear features of, you know, a peripheral tissue injury, and that, that's absolutely fine. The idea of acute versus chronic pain is, is not helpful in any way in, in, in those kind of situations, because ultimately, it's about treating what's in front of you. It's treating what you determine based on on, on a history taking and, a, and an objective examination. So I, I, I don't think the acute versus chronic in any way helps me in the clinic because it's always a person in front of me, not, not, not simply somebody that has had pain for one day or, 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 or 10 years. Um, as I said, equally, we assume that when it's persistent or chronic pain that, oh, well, then it, there mustn't be any tissue related factors involved in this. And, and we know that that's not true either. You know, the only way we can determine what's involved for any individual is through a good history taken and an assessment. Um, so I think we need to, we need to avoid this, um, I suppose, these type of categorizations, which ultimately can often lead to treatments based on the category rather than the person. And that's, that's the danger. So, you know, if it's someone that has acute back pain, we still need to look at reassuring them. We need to look at their beliefs, their attitudes, their worries, their concerns. We need to screen for red flags. We need to do all of those things. And the danger of, say, assuming that acute means tissue or peripheral and not any of the other stuff would would often mean that sometimes these factors wouldn't get discussed or or addressed. And, And we're missing the boat here because, you know, in an acute presentation like that, it's very important to identify some of these so-called yellow flags that might be poor or, or indicators of poor prognosis that actually we need to address in this very acute phase. So, you know, I suppose to summarize all of that, treat the individual, listen to them, you know, do a good history taking and examination and and base your intervention on that and not on, you know, necessarily how long they've had pain for.
0: Awesome. It's more about their story and, and the person and their goals versus how long they've had the the pain for. And you're right, we can we can miss so many key features of the story if we just go into that automatic processing of this is an acute patient. These are the interventions that I generally use for acute presentations. Therefore, that's that's the way to go. And and on the on the topic of, of treatments, there's the there's the debate that will probably rage on for many more years to come of manual therapy and exercise and perhaps there doesn't even need to be such a false dichotomy but what is what's your your stance when it comes to to treating patients experiencing pain manual therapy versus exercise what's your stance
1: yeah look i suppose that's that's a topic that divides opinion as 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 everyone um knows uh my my personal um i suppose belief for interpretation of the of the body research is that you know the earlier and the more we can promote active coping mechanisms that the you know the the, the better for everybody involved and yes there's i suppose I, I i can see the rationale that people propose for um the use of more passive interventions particularly earlier on in the course of 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 someone's pain trajectory but i suppose there, there is an underlying assumption that the, both the magnitude and the duration of the effect of these passive interventions is sufficient to change behavior. So, the argument is that these techniques reduce pain in the short term that promote active management or promote or help the patient engage more with rehabilitation. So, that would mean that the effect of the manual therapy in terms of the, the effect size in terms of pain and the duration of that effect would have to be of sufficient duration to have that effect. Now, ultimately that's an empirical question. That that's a question that we need research to tell us or to inform us on whether that's, that, that that's true or not. So uh, I, am I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a great believer in justifying treatments purely based on a good mechanism or on a good, you know, proposed mechanism because we know from medicine in general, not just physio, but we know there's been many interventions that have had potentially a really good mechanistic target and haven't really delivered in terms of producing clinical outcomes. So we hear things like it modulates the nervous system or it provides novel input. That, that, that doesn't help me when there's a patient in front of me. You know, what, what helps me is knowing that this intervention reliably changes pain to a sufficient extent and magnitude and duration to, 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 to ultimately change the, the end outcome, you know? So, you know, so it's, I suppose that's very much an academic debate, but, but, but that's where I would see it. So if, if exercise doesn't have any maybe better or worse outcomes than manual therapy in the short term, then I will generally choose the active and the active um, group. And while it might be more challenging to you know, to engage people with the more active interventions early on, particularly if they 're in a lot of pain and they're looking for pain relief I, I think with good education, really good listening skills, good motivational interviewing skills i, I think I think that's possible and and that 's the challenge for clinicians you know let's let's look at the things that um, that might be challenging and might be difficult to do, and let 's look at better ways of of doing that and really getting good at those so-called soft skills which are not uh which which are really which are really a lot more important um than than previously many would have realized but but that would be my philosophy of that but but equally i can see where others come from when they're when with their rationale around why we might use these passive interventions but i suppose from an academic perspective i would see that as well that that's an empirical question that should be open to testing in the research so do people that receive passive care early on does it actually foster an increase in therapeutic alliance does it actually engage or help them to engage in in active rehabilitation and I, i'm i'm not sure that we have the evidence yet to say that
0: the whole window of opportunity rationale for for manual therapy prior to exercise or in the acute stage and yet you're right we we have yet to come across sufficient strong evidence to to support that so the claims need to be continually questioned and also the value of of soft skills is is left um left untouched if we look at if we don't at least try to apply an active approach from the start to get people on board from the start and it's not saying that active therapy can't help
1: because i I think what we tend to forget as clinicians is that we we see people when they're in pain we don't see the people that develop acute back pain and never turn up to the clinic. And what is it about that group of people that means that they don't rely or they don't need any of that passive care? And why can't we learn from that group to then look at, well, what are those features that really determine care-seeking behaviors that, that we can ultimately change? So sometimes I wonder, are we looking at the wrong groups? We look at the groups that are that are presenting in into the clinic, whereas it's obviously harder to identify the people that are not presenting, for the very reason that they're not presenting. But you know that to me suggests that you know the coping skills and the coping mechanisms are are are, are different in different people. And what can we learn? What can we learn from that group that we can apply to the people that we might see in the clinic?
0: I think looking into the qualitative research as it emerges will be really valuable on that front. Really great yeah. questions for all the yeah. researchers listening now.
1: <laughs> because I, I actually haven't seen any good qualitative research when we look at, when we look at patient values and what they, what they value from a treatment session. I've never really seen any strong evidence that they do value a lot of this hands-on stuff it still comes back to the listening and they want an explanation and they want their, you know, they want to be heard and they want their goals to be uh, listened to. And, you know, so the qualitative work is telling us, well, these are the things that people value. So we need to be careful that we're not assuming that patients value what, what we haven't really good evidence to suggest that, that they do value.
0: And perhaps looking at how we can create that context where we can support the, the active therapy from the start rather than, I guess, create the context of they walk into a treatment room, there is a bed there, they're lying down from the the very start and creating that expectation. And
1: I I think as clinicians on that very point, as clinicians, that's why we need to engage with the public a lot more. We need to be involved in health promotion campaigns. We cannot wait until patients present in the clinic. We need to, in order to change societal beliefs and values around pain and and the best approaches to manage this, we need to be more proactive and we need to be getting out into our communities. We need to be engaging um, um, with with communities. And I suppose in Australia, we've seen the pain revolution, for example, as being a very high profile example of this, you know, and, and we need to see more of that. And that will require clinicians thinking outside the box and thinking more in terms of health promotion, rather than being fixers or only waiting for when people present with a problem in the clinic. The whole model needs
0: to change. Absolutely. And on a similar kind of note, when it comes to over-treatment or over-diagnosis in musculoskeletal practice, there's been a lot of emerging research recently as to the elephant in the room. So on the, you mentioned public education and, and clinicians reaching out to the layperson. How else can we as clinicians reduce over-treatment in, in musculoskeletal practice?
1: Uh, okay, so one way we can do that is the very early promotion of self-care strategies or, or self-management strategies. So from the very first visit, it's about what can the patient do for themselves to help their problem. You know, so it's it's about making sure they they don't become dependent on any one person. Um, to, you know, this is about looking at ways of developing active um, coping skills. So clearly, education is a fundamental part of. Of, of this process. And going back to what we, we discussed earlier around maybe even educating people before they become patients or, you know, how do we get this information out much earlier? But even when they're in the clinic and they are presenting to us, it's about not giving them any unnecessary, scary information, avoiding any unnecessary follow-up tests or procedures. And I do use the word unnecessary because clearly there are times when things are necessary for a smaller group of people where we identify potential red flag disorders and that's absolutely fly, fine and any, any good clinician should be referring people on or, or referring people via the, the appropriate pathways when they do suspect something more sinister or serious is going on. But thankfully for the vast majority of people we see, that isn't the case. So in, in this group, it's about early self-management or self-care strategies, avoiding anything that's, that's not necessary or not going to help and And perhaps using some of these um we've seen an emerging body of evidence around tools like the startback tool. Now they're not you know they, they shouldn't replace clinical judgment but but they can be a helpful tool and and they appear to be better at identifying the low risk groups, so they they appear to be good at telling us, you know this is a group of people that really un, are very unlikely to need any long 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 term management, and they're likely to do quite well. And for, for that group, we can, you know, we can give them simple reassurance, advice, positive information, and perhaps follow them up with a phone, phone call or give them the opportunity for a follow-up appointment that they might not need, that, they, that it's okay to, to ring 48 hours ahead and, and, and tell you that, you know, I don't need that appointment. I'm okay to cancel that for the moment. So you have to make sure you give them the, the support structure, but not to necessarily bring them back when, when that might not be required. The the difficult part is those people that fall into the so-called medium or high risk groups. Um, they're probably likely to need, um, need more intervention or, or more monitoring and how much monitoring or how much intervention, um, will, will, will differ. Um, and, and we should never use our clinical judgment, um, around that, but we have some good, tools now like i said like the StartBack tool or the the group in keel university um in the uk ha- have done a lot of work in the primary care setting about looking at prognostic tools and prognostic factors in musculoskeletal pain so it's important that as clinicians we're looking at these prognostic factors and 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 using that as part of our clinical reasoning as to what type of intervention this um this patient might need, and they might include things like people with very high levels of pain, people with multiple pain sites, people with comorbid um, anxiety or depression, people with sleep um, sleep disorders, etc, so we build up a picture of factors both related and unrelated to pain that might in some way influence the trajectory of, of, of these people. So we really need to shift away from a a purely diagnostic model and a very labeling model to a prognostic model. And, and very importantly there, a, a prognostic model doesn't exclude the diagnosis so it's not it's not excluding the fact that they might have a very specific diagnosis for example rheumatoid arthritis but if we we know that if we took a group of 100 patients with rheumatoid arthritis in terms of pain their prognosis is very different even though their diagnosis might be the same so a prognostic model will still account for the fact that these people have rheumatoid arthritis but actually this group are sleeping very well. They don't have multiple pain sites. They have very, very well controlled inflammatory disease. Whereas this group have, you know, they have a lot more prevalence of depression. There's, they have more multiple and widespread constant pain, for example. So those two groups will vary in their treatments, even though their diagnosis might be the same. So not to get, not to get trapped in the diagnostic trap, and to really think much more broadly at an, at an individual level as to how we, might, how we might reduce or we might give the treatment to who needs it and not overly treat the people that really are going to do well anyway.
0: So look, valuing more of the prognostic criteria on top of the diagnosis perhaps can lead to more of a holistic view of that yeah. person and all the factors involved in their experience. Exactly. And when it comes to the, the patients with more of the psychosocial, uh, I guess, criteria ticked, the, the financial stress, especially now with the current situation, the, the job security, the relationship issues, the, the long work hours, poor sleep, high stress. What are some of the ways that, that we, can, we can help these patients in, with significant yellow flags?
1: So, I suppose the first thing that I would say there is that remember that hopefully most of us will have access or at least access in the community to to a multidisciplinary type type setup. so there there will be times where we need to bring in people into people's management plan that that have different skill sets to us, so, for example, it might be a clinical psychologist, it might be their gP uh, et cetera, around a specific concern that you or I as a clinician might have. So if somebody has developed quite profound post-traumatic stress disorder after a trauma or an accident, or has very poorly controlled clinical depression, it's quite important that we refer or we bring in the people that have the appropriate skill set and qualifications to help us in, in that regard. However, a lot of what we see in the clinic isn't psychopathology. It isn't a specific pathology it's a, it's a normal human response to life and to issues that they might be having including pain and not all of those stressors are modifiable as you mentioned so you know some of the stuff around finance you know past history obviously a lot of these things we we can change and just because we can change them doesn't necessarily mean that there's nothing we can we can do so we have we have really good evidence now that tells us that in terms of health outcomes it's not just the stressor it's how people adapt and cope with the stressor that often determines their outcome so this is where concepts of resilience come in so looking at things like exercise and sleep and you know social support mindfulness cognitive behavioral therapy techniques their nutrition etc these all buffer that neuroimmune response to whatever stressors are happening in their life. And ultimately that can change the outcome. So that's the conversation that I would have with patients. So it's, it's really important that we don't give them the sense that all of these things are contributing to your pain, but we can't do anything about them, you know, because that, that actually disempowers people. Whereas we can acknowledge them and say, look, you know, these all are potentially contributing factors. And I, I do use the word contributing rather than causing because it's very important that we don't play a blame game. That we say, "Look, we need to con- we need to account for these factors and not not overly analyze them in terms of what you know what role they're playing." But we don't have to be able to change them. But we can change how you react and the effect that they're having on you by introducing some of these other things. Um, some of these stressors are modifiable, so you know, we do know with, with difficulty, we can change people's sleep behaviors. We can, we can change their exercise and activity behaviors, for example. Um, and great if we can change them, but I don't get bogged down so much about, is it changeable or not? Because by incorporating some of those things I've just mentioned, we can modulate that stress response and, and ultimately in, in, enhance the outcomes that way. So that's, that would be my take on
0: that having more of a salutogenic kind of uh, context or lens to look through so we can still look at what we can't control and what we can control. And regardless of these factors, they've been living with these factors for, for a while. We can't really change them, but we can still help the person respond in more helpful ways to them. For sure. And we were mentioning, you mentioned before about the, the, the behavior change models and, and exposure therapy. So one of, the, one of the factors in that would be the behaviors of the, the patient's safety behaviors that they might be doing, perhaps unknowingly. So what are some examples of, of safety behaviors that are helpful? And what are some that are perhaps unhelpful for a patient?
1: Yeah. And that, this, is a, this is a challenging um, question and, and it really does require the patient in front of you to, to really explore when a safety behavior is acting as a, as a coping skill or when it's actually impeding people's, people's recovery. Um, so it can, be, it can be adaptive in a particular context and it can be maladaptive in another context. So the exact same behavior can serve varying functions that are two different Contexts. Um, so I suppose if we, if, if we give a, a typical example of somebody that has an acute lumbar radiculopathy, and it's very you know a very irritable uh, radiculopathy, and it's repeatedly provoked when they flex, you know it's consistently re- reproduced when they flex. Sorry, um, and for a period of time they've they're engaging bracing strategies around avoiding flexion while they're acutely sore in those situations after having undergone a clinical examination it you know you very well might be that that's an that's a protective or a very adaptive response to something that's that that's acutely painful or somebody that has symptomatic spinal stenosis that has adopted more of a flexed gait pattern or they you know, they they exaggerate the amount of flexion that they're in and they avoid anything that involves lumbar extension. So again, that's adaptive because when we examine these people, what you might find is that this is actually helping them to function. This is serving, uh, it's acting as a coping skill. So for somebody that has a bit of stenosis and they flex forward, that allows them to actually do that walk, which otherwise they might not have been able to to do previously. So it, it's really about looking at what, what is the function of this behavior? And is it is it adaptive in the sense, is it enhancing function, or is it doing the opposite? So if, if we look at a an example of a maladaptive safety behavior, you know, consider somebody that has a long history of knee pain and they have they have the diagnosis of knee osteoarthritis and you know, when, when you bring them through a, an objective examination in the clinic, and it, it becomes quite apparent that they routinely offload the leg that's painful. So when they're going from a sit to stand, or when they're standing even statically, that they reduce the amount of weight that goes through that leg. And, and then you come along as part of a as part of your examination again. And, and, and you change that and you get them to load that left leg where they're going to stand up or when they're, when they're standing and they're not reporting that this is in any way or is not excessively painful, or it's not as bad as they thought, for example. Now, here is an example where a previous experience of pain has led to avoidance of using that leg in, under certain context. And often to the extent where these behaviors are habits, they don't, they're not even consciously controlled. They've just become habitual um, safety behaviors. So safety behaviors can only be determined to be adaptive or maladaptive after a good history taken and once the person is in front of you and, and really looking at what function that they're, um, they're serving. So if there's a clear and obvious benefit to what someone is doing, then it's likely adaptive so you're you're going to you're going to limp on your sprained ankle you're probably going to avoid a, a bit of flexion if you have a very irritable radiculopathy, or you're going to flex a little bit or you're going to avoid extension if you have if you have a flared up spinal stenosis okay so we have to have this can only follow a good clinical examination as we've alluded to previously in the um previously in 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 the talk why i, I suppose the problem of safety behaviors then, safety behaviors, when they're maladaptive or when they're not serving any function, they, they reinforce these negative beliefs. So they reinforce the belief that, you know, my knee is damaged or, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not good for me to put weight on my, on my painful knee. And really importantly, they prevent disconfirmation of that belief. So the patient has no way of learning the error of their ways because when they, w- when they avoid loading that left knee or, or whichever knee is painful, they never realize actually it wasn't as bad as I thought it was, or it, it wasn't as bad as I thought it would be. So the, the behaviors can, can, can lead to excessive avoidance, which means that the patient never learns that, you know, maybe, maybe this isn't as, as bad as I, as I previously thought. And the other thing that they do is they promote hypervigilance. You know, so you'll see people that will, will, will consistently rub the body parts that's painful or they'll, they'll brace it, or they'll hold it. And, and all of these strategies keep people's mind on the, on the pain. you know. So they bring their attention to it. They make them very vigilant of their body. They make them aware of the painful area, which, which all can be very self-reinforcing.
0: So they're promoting that avoidance, both the perhaps the psychological attention avoidance, or an, the belief as well is, is being strengthened. And maybe... Clinicians, we can also be perpetuating that safety behavior um, with, our, with our actions or our, or our narratives or our cues when it comes to an exercise. So it's really important to, to if, if that behavior is unhelpful in that context, to, to challenge it and to see if we can have a graded approach to, to challenging that behavior.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And and it's really about identifying whether it's adaptive or maladaptive. And and if it's adaptive and serving a function and serving a purpose, then there, you know, then there's good rationale not to necessarily change that.
0: And you mentioned before cognitive reappraisal and and I think we touched very briefly on on mindfulness. So using using these concepts to to avoid the the potential for perpetuating avoidance in, in behaviors. How can we use that in in practice and how can we avoid using things like distraction or using just purely pain focused uh, treatments for patients?
1: Yeah. Like things like distraction is an interesting concept because, you know, there is quite good evidence that at least experimentally that distraction is a good way of relieving pain. You know, so it, it it simply because it probably shifts the attentional focus to something else. And, and, you know, as a result of that, we we get less pain, but in some ways and in certain contexts, distraction basically becomes a way in which the patient doesn't engage with their pain experience. And some might even call this avoidance. It mightn't be the typical type of avoidance that we've, we've discussed up until now, but the problem is is when distraction is not available to the patient or when when distraction isn't sufficient to reduce their pain then what are they left with okay so a part of people's journey with pain is is really going back to the fundamentals of understanding pain and that it is okay to function with pain and that doesn't always mean we have to we have to distract ourselves from it you know, I, I do think it's important that we, we give people the skills that they don't always become reactive to pain. So when they have pain, that, that, that they don't become excessively tense or excessively avoidant or excessively nervous. But, but in order to achieve that, it doesn't mean we have to distract them from it you know, we can just use some of the, this is where the principles of mindfulness and, you know, some of the work around acceptance acceptance and commitment therapy can work quite well, because it really is about teaching the patient that it's okay to be in the presence of pain or in the presence of your pain, but it's okay not to necessarily have to do anything about it. You know, you can still focus on, on the function bit and on the on the active coping skills which which sometimes can include distraction so i'm not saying that distraction is never use uh, is of never any use in the clinic but we really need to look at what what function is it serving and and in the long term is it shifting the the focus so much away from pain that when people are in pain and they don't have other strategies available that they're not able to that they're not able to cope with it. So I suppose the way I would see it is that we need to teach people or get people to learn how to engage with, but not be reactive to pain.
0: And not use certain strategies in a manner that is purely for pain reduction and nothing else. So it's also looking at the function. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. There, there is some experimental work. Um, it's a while back now, and I, I don't recall the um, the specific paper. But it was in a, in an, in an experimental setting. While while acutely, there's a reduction of pain due to distraction. There's paradoxically an increase in pain post activity in people that use distraction versus don't use distraction. So I, I'm not entirely sure of the mechanisms that might um, that that might underpin that, but. Again, this is leading us just to challenge the general assumption that distraction is always a useful technique and that, that it's, um, it can be, but we, it, it has some caveats.
0: Awesome. It's, it's really useful when we, we come into trying to take someone's pain away. What are we leaving them with? That's the main thing. So what, what self-management strategies are we, are we leaving them with? That's, that's the main priority as opposed to just coming in and taking their pain away. Because what, what does that leave them? A really good, really great point. And when it comes to the current situation uh, with telehealth, the rise of telehealth, what are some of the ways that we can conduct assessments? So we, we've talked about the subjective. So perhaps what are the, the values of the subjective and how can we conduct a thorough assessment through, through a video online consultation?
1: Yeah, so it goes back to what we discussed at the at the beginning of the of, of this podcast around the value in listening to people's story. Um, we can do it. We can do all of that uh, through remote mechanisms now, thanks to thanks to the technology that, that that's available. So we we can do a good history. We can take a good history. We we can reassure people when reassurance is is required. Um, I suppose. We shouldn't. We shouldn't lose sight of the fact, though, that it still comes back to the. It still comes back to a good history taking. You know, th- th- there will be times where telehealth, for whatever reason, is not suitable for that patient because, you know, through their story or through their history taking, that it, it's apparent that they, they 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 may have signs and symptoms that do war- warrant more immediate attention or referral, or you know, that they, you know, that they need uh, a physical examination in person. So the caveat here is that, and we, we alluded to it earlier, to the idea that just because they've had pain for a long time doesn't mean that we shouldn't be vigilant for anything that's not in keeping with a, a typical persistent pain or a chronic pain uh, presentation. They They can still develop some you know things like infection any anything at all that 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 might warrant a very different uh pathway, so you know just make sure that my advice would be make sure that it that you don't have any preconceived beliefs and notions, even if it's a patient that's very well known to you, you know make sure that we listen to them we look for any changes in their presentation and if that person is suitable or not for a telehealth consult but provided that that's been done thoroughly and 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 it is suitable then we can do a lot of the stuff that we've we've discussed on this podcast we can look at you know if they're flaring up well how how are they coping with that? What are they learning from that? You know, what went on? And we we can do all that motivation interviewing, that reflective questioning via remote means. We can we can look at how they're moving. We, you know, we we can we can set that up. Um, th- th- there's lots of things that we can still do. Just be aware of the things that we can't do. And for a certain group of people, those things that we can't do will warrant referral to somebody that you know it's it's a challenging time obviously because you know referral pathways are obviously affected as well in terms of where can we send these people when they need it but you know the acute services are still there the hospitals have to still operate you know when when there's an when there's an urgency to it don't don't delay and and make sure that we we take the appropriate steps required
0: and we can still use the telehealth consultation as a way to triage them to the appropriate services after a thorough assessment yeah
1: and I think for the vast majority of people, they probably won't require any additional referral, and for those people, we can we can do all the the, the, the stuff that've we've, that we've mentioned on this podcast. we can we can change their program, we can change exercise programs, we can look at how they're coping, not coping. you know we can just provide a, we can provide a listening ear in a very stressful time. There's a lot of online resources that people can be directed to so i I, I think there's a lot of positives that, that, that can be gained from this, but it really comes back to the self-management or the self-care strategies. That's really what we need to be fostering. And it probably, it, you know, a difficult time like this is making clinicians needing to upskill on some of this type of work as well, really enhancing their ability to engage the patient in terms of self-management and, and look at different ways that we would communicate with people outside of the clinic setting.
0: It's an opportunity for us to, to upskill in the soft skills that matter perhaps so much more than we, we thought. Yeah. And I, I can't leave you without asking a, a question in regards to running because one of the things perhaps that I missed out on the introduction was your athletic successes. So tell us, if you were to plan a, a running program, what, what principles would you be following and how would you go about with, their, with the strength and conditioning for a runner?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I I would keep this I would keep the principles quite basic, um, both in terms of in terms of the running program and any additional um strength and conditioning work that they would do outside of that. So I, I think we've we've all heard of the concept of progressive overload or you know, a progressive or a gradual increase in in, in in training loads. So, you know, get getting people to monitor their training loads and you know, progressing that in a very sensible and a Um, straightforward format because I I do think a lot of it's overcomplicated you know we can when we adhere to the very basic principles you know we can we we can go a long way so it it depends obviously on the level of runner that we're talking about if it's if it if it's someone very new to running and their baseline fitness is really low then because they don't have a, a very big buffer in terms they haven't a long training history you know we'll have to be a little bit more gradual with, with building their training loads up. Whereas if somebody that has a good training history, they will have developed some capacity to deal with that, the the load. And and we can probably be a little bit more, I suppose not, we don't have to be as gradual or as, um, as somebody that, that might have a very low training history. So it, again, it comes back to the idea of the individual rather than having a 10% rule, for example. Um, So in terms of the strength and conditioning type of work, then the, the, the same principles apply. So is it somebody that's never done any strength and conditioning work before? If, if they haven't, then the type of programming that we might do will look very different than an, than an accomplished gym-goer. Okay, so, you know, we do have some emerging evidence that in the running literature and probably across the endurance sports that... I suppose a more traditional strength-type program, that moderate repetitions, that kind of three sets of eight repetitions, relatively heavy weights, um, sl- twice a week. So your heavy, slow-loading pro- protocols seem to seem to have some of the better adaptations in terms of uh, running performance. So in terms of changing. Tendon stiffness, etc. Uh, you know, improving improving uh, maximum strength, um, for example. However, if the person is very new to the gym environment or to the to the weights room, then it's perfectly reasonable to start them on a more of a higher volume, lower intensity type program. You know, um, until they develop sufficient skill sets around, or they become competent, and they become not just competent in terms of how they're doing the movement, but that they have a sense of confidence. That, you know, that, that they like the program, that they're able for it. So again, it's this graded exposure um, type, type process that we would use with, with anyone else. And, and over time, we can tr- trans- transition these people to lifting more heavier weights and with less repetitions and lower volumes as they become more accomplished in, in terms of that. Equally, it's important that as a runner, that they're made aware that there is a balance between exercise and recovery. And recovery doesn't have to mean rest, but it does mean that it can't be just all exercise. It can't be all running and strength and conditioning. They have to look at their sleep. They have to look at, you know, their nutrition. They have to look at their daily stressors in their life and how they're managing that going back to how they're coping with the stresses in their life. Because we know ultimately it's these factors that determine how somebody responds to a training, a training load. So, you know, you, you can be progressing your training loads really gradually and really well, but not sleeping very well and not eating um, sufficiently for the for the demand of the exercise and still result in pain and injury. So it's not, you know, it's not just about the gradual progression of their exercise intensity or load. It's as much about getting the balance right between their recovery and and the, the so-called external load versus the internal load and making sure that there's, that, that, that there's good balance in, in, in that system. So, you know, I, I suppose what's obvious there is that that's not that different than how we would manage somebody with persistent pain, ultimately. You know, it's about increasing the amount of work they're doing, but at the same time, making sure that we have the recovery strategies in place that, that their body and their, their physiology can adapt to cope with the demands of, of what we're asking them to do.
0: It's almost like athletes and people with persistent pain are human and we're treating the person versus subcategorizing yeah.
1: them. Yeah, for, for sure. And, and again, Annie, th- that's why we need to we need to always treat the individual. And it doesn't matter if they're, you know, if they're an athlete, if they're non-athletic, if they're sedentary or very physically active. It's, it's about identifying the factors that are relevant for that person. And not labeling them or having any pre- preconceived ideas of what, 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 how, how things will play out.
0: Derek, it's been an absolute pleasure. There's been some really valuable practical takeaways, which I'm really keen to, to discuss in our group. So thank you so much for your time. And where can people find you? So...
1: In terms of, as I said, where I'm, I'm working at the Bon Secours Hospital um, here in Chile in County Kerry. So um, people, people can source me there. Um, or alternatively, I suppose most people are on social media nowadays. So I'm quite active, especially on Twitter. So my Twitter handle is at Derek Griffin 86. Um, I'm also on Facebook, Dr. Derek Griffin Physiotherapy. So there's plen- plenty of ways and means of um, contacting me. And I, I'm happy to take any um, kind of questions that somebody might, might want to ask me that they don't want to post to the group, for example. So feel free to, feel free to private message me or, or, or anything like that. I'm, I'm happy to do that.
0: Awesome. And it's definitely uh, one to follow for, for everyone with, with your great critical feedback and honest opinions and also great appraisal of, of the research. So really appreciate all the, all the content that you put out and please keep it up. Thanks Daniel. Awesome. Thank you, Derek. And until next time.